Where the hell did a chief revenue officer come from? <laughs> so I've been asking myself that question for a while now. Um, you know, I think what happens is we had chief sales officers, right? Because sales wanted a seat at the table because we had CMOs, chief marketing officers. Right. So we have the C-suite, right? Everybody wants to be at the table in the C-suite. So you get finance gets a seat at the table, right? HR, you got a CHRO. HR gets a seat at the table. Marketing gets a seat at the table. Where the hell is sales? So I think what happened is they said, we have to promote a sales leader up to the level that they get an equal seat at the table. Hmm, I wonder why. Because like, if there are no sales, we don't have a company. You know, like, come on, start listening to the salespeople because they're the ones talking to the customer. And if we're truly gonna lead our companies such that we surround our customers with goodness and great experiences and we meet them where they are, then this is a team sport, people. This is not your salespeople go out and do this and everybody else does that, right? You got to stop that kind of thinking. So they decided, you know, we'll bring sales to the table. So we had the chief sales officer, right? Um, and I think then what we realized is, because there's no mar alignment between sales and marketing and customer success, because we started having a chief customer officers as well, right? Somewhere in there that happened, but there's no alignment, right? Like, why do you need a CEO if you have a CRO? Like, I'm still, like, I, I'm having a struggle. Because so you got a CFO. Now, why do you need a CFO if you have a CRO? Like, what is, what are these roles? And I think companies are struggling with it. Um, and so it's their glory. It's just it's glorified titles. It's you know title inflation is what I call it. Title inflation. So here, let me inflate your title. Most of the people who are CROs don't really have that experience that would be needed to truly be a chief revenue officer because they need to have a lot of finance background, right, to really do that job. Well, we got a CFO, so like I'm still confused. Um, not trying to throw any. Zeros under the bus. I love them all. Well, well, they throw themselves but, underneath the bus because they only last eighteen months. Right, they're not they're not lasting in their positions because we don't know what they're supposed to do. The job description isn't clear, and there's too much mush now. Like, should marketing report to the CRO? Because if it does, then we don't need a CMO anymore, right? Because we have a CRO, so VP of Sales and VP of Marketing and VP of Customer Success technically should report into the CRO. If that's the case, who works in tandem with the CFO and the CEO, got it. And your CHRO um, and whatever other CTO and IT people you have. But um, I don't know. I mean, it's a mess. And it, it, I think investors have a lot to do with it sometimes because they get, you know, we get this fancy new title and the, the investors are like, oh, you need a CRO. Really? What for? Like, let the CEO do their job. I think part of the reason you need a CRO is because CEOs don't want to be involved in sales, especially founder CEOs who came from engineering or some other practice, didn't come up out of sales. They want someone who knows way more about sales than they do, rather than learning what they should know about sales so that they can be their own chief revenue officer. But until a company hits like a hundred million or more, yeah. We, it's it's tough having a CRO and a CEO and a COO. Oh, I forgot the COO in this whole conversation mm -hmm. and a CMO and a COO and a like the C-suite has grown tremendously. And how do we carry all these heavy, heavy, big boy, big girl salaries 
with these C-level people on a, on a company that's under a hundred million dollars. What are you doing? Why would your investors Lay let you pay people that much? Layoffs. The only thing yeah, I can- Yeah, then we lay the other people off, right? We lay yeah. all the, yeah. It's Alice Hyman here, your chief sales energizer. I know, best title you've ever heard for a sales leader. Evidently, I'm on this show called Sassholes. Who booked me for this show? Welcome to Sassholes. We are revenue apps with an edge. With decades of making interesting decisions, Jamie, Jason, and Pete are dedicated to helping aspiring sales leaders accelerate revenues with our no BS approach to sales leadership strategies and tactics. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. We'd like to thank Demand Farm, Winalytics, and Aaron J for their continued support. DemandFarm.com, unlock key account growth with Demand Farm's large deal, key account, and relationship intelligence products. Go to DemandFarm.com now to schedule a demo. Ask for Iron Man. Brent Keltner's Winalytics Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass. In five hours over five weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team build the mindset and skills for a new buyer environment. Kick off in product-driven selling versus authentic conversations for all go-to-market teams. Team-level sessions for self-assessment and team dialogue. All go-to-market team wrap-up to identify top go-to-market strategy adjustments. Go to winalytics.com now. We got some shout outs to do. Congrats, Isaac Lopez, four years at Logo School. Jason Craven's old school, one year at Maxwell Healthcare. Angelina McNeil's got a new gig as talent acquisition manager at Pro. Michael Taylor got a new gig, SVP customer service at Nightel. All right. Melissa Steele, new gig, chief executive officer at Steel Pickleball. Greg Brass, five years at the Home Depot. Dave Madden, one year at Myers and Stauffer. And we got a happy birthday, John Frazier, another spin around son. Alice Hyman, thank you so much for coming on the Sassholes podcast. You are welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. I heard heard you interviewed my sister. Yeah, it's a family affair. Liz came right. on and, you know, we managed to get a couple of clips out there breaking the interweb. And she said, we yep. got to bring sis. So just for saying some the she's the organized sister. She and she's the quieter one. So, well, she speaks Japanese. That's true. You speak any language? I do not. Okay. Hola, como estas? A little bit. <laughs> you speak sasshole, Sassanese? I speak sassholes for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So you came up in sales through the biz. Now, help, I'm not looking at my notes. I'm going to try to remember from uh, memory. Steve Hyman, that's, that's your old man. Is that true? Yep, yep, yep. Okay. And Bob Miller, his partner, I've known since I was three. Liz was not even born when my dad and his partner met. Okay. And how did they get together in that story? Because, I mean, everybody that talks about strategic sales talks about, you know, yeah. those guys. Uh, tell us the story. 
Yeah. Well, when I was little, they worked for a company called Kepner Trigo. I'm not even sure that company's around anymore, but it was some sort of a consulting firm. Um, my dad had been in sales, you know, for many, many years. And uh, I, Bob has some academic background as well as sales background, not as clear on, on that. But anyway, many, many years later, after both of them had done a lot of other things in the 70s, when I was just a young lass uh, and still in college, I uh, did I just give away my age? <laughs> ah, why did I do Let that? Okay. Post. But anyway, it was the late, late 70s. Um, yeah, they were both in California and had both had these long careers and had decided to get together. Bob was already doing some consulting with companies on how to put some sales process in place. And he asked my dad to join him and Miller Hyman was born. And uh, then, you know, not long after they got tired of repeating themselves because as we know, um, people in sales need to hear the same thing over and over again. And every company thinks they're so different. Their sale is so different, but, um, you know, Bob and Steve were focused on the complex sale and turns out it's not so different. So they wrote it all down, um, and they put it in a book called strategic selling. And that was the first book. What was super fun is back in the day, they had those big old flip charts. Do you remember those yep, yep, the white yep. paper? That's before post-it, by the way, everyone, all of you youngins, there was no sticky stuff on these charts. Um, and they had markers and they would write, you know, all this stuff over and over again on the charts. And then finally they got smart and they got a calligrapher to write the charts. And then they just flip them over because they were the same every time. Once again, I know everybody thinks their sale is so unique and so different, but buyers buy the way buyers buy. And so your sales process has to match that. And oh my gosh, they knew that even back in the seventies on seems like it's big news today that we have to map the buyer journey, but it's not. We've known that for a long time. And so your sales process shouldn't be that different because buyers buy the same way. They have to go through a process of thinking through and organizing information and reviewing things and discussing things, right? And coming to consensus, especially in the complex sale where there's many. So Anyway, that's how the company started. And uh, it just grew from there to yeah. their conceptual selling and large account management and their manager's coaching, which is in a book called Selling Machine. Um, yeah. Porn Ferry said, hey, dump the, <laughs> dump the money here. <laughs> well, there's something in between, right? So in 1998, this is kind of interesting, um, but we, okay. need, we need to get to the good stuff. But this is kind of interesting. Yeah. It was the first time a private equity firm had acquired a sales training firm and they purchased Miller Hyman and then they rolled up a bunch of happened? other competitors okay. with them. And then that got sold and eventually 2080 ended up owning it or 8020 or whatever their name was. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, then Corn Fury bought it. Maybe now it's been three or four years, not quite sure. Okay. So there was a little bit of a journey between, between. Uh, my dad and Bob, you know, owning the company together, my dad yeah. buying Bob out, uh, my dad and stepmom running the company, the first PE firm buying it and Corn Fury. There was probably, well, my dad sold it in 1998 and Corn Fury just picked it up a couple of years ago. So there was a gap there and some other okay. things happening. <laughs> And then a uh, quick uh, shout out to the to your stepmom. I guess she she played a pretty pretty big She's, role. She did indeed. She did indeed. Okay. Okay. 
All right, because everybody's going to ask, you know, you got Alice Hyman on. Oh, she the yeah, she is okay. <laughs> what, what? So so growing up, I, you're be you you had to close for breakfast, lunch, and dinner <laughs> strategically. How did you branch <laughs> off into what you're doing now? Because I mean, you're you're dealing with CEOs, uh, trying to get their persona together, how they should right. sell. How how did you evolve into that? And then what are you doing now? Yeah, so a lot of people who've heard me on other podcasts may remember that I started as an elementary school teacher and a special educator. I have an undergraduate degree in special education. My graduate degree is in literacy, so I was a reading specialist. So I had nothing to do with the business really when I started out. But um, I was in the Midwest. Long story. My family started in New Jersey. Everybody ended up on the West Coast. But um, we, when I, um, moved West after a while, uh, to be with the rest of my family, that's when my dad would start asking me to do projects. So I was a full-time teacher, but my dad would be like, Hey, could you do this? Can you design this for me? Can you design some curriculum for a sales game? Can you look at this curriculum? So he kept, you know, kind of asking me to do stuff like that. Now, remember Liz is eight years, seven or eight years younger than I am. So she wasn't really, you know, she was still in college at this point. Um, and, and she actually got dragged in to do some of these projects too. When they would release a book, they would have these leather, beautiful leather bound editions and we helped them package them up and mail them out and do all that kind of stuff. So we were involved, you know, to some degree, but I was still teaching. But eventually my dad wore me down, <laughs> and, uh, my stepmom, and when they took... Uh, over the company when they bought Bob out, then they were like, hey, we really want you to come work for us and help us develop curriculum and all that. So they didn't hire me to be in sales, just FYI. Um, my dad, in fact, said to me, now, Alice, just remember that teaching salespeople is not like teaching kindergarten. I said, okay. <laughs> Kindergartners are smarter. Sure. But he was wrong, of course. And of course, he had never taught kindergarten. So I don't know how he would know. But anyway, on um, long story short, I went to work for them, revamped all their curriculum, started training the trainers, running the programs first, uh, because I had revamped all the curriculum and wanted to make sure it all ran smoothly. It did. Then I started training all the trainers. And then I worked with some of our largest customers, Coca-Cola, Hewlett Packard, AT&T, Dow Chemical, you name it. Um, and from there, the dot-com time came. And also I knew that my dad and stepmom wanted to sell the company. And so I left and started my own company and all the senior executives from Fidelity Investments and Dow and all these other companies that I worked with were fleeing corporate America to work for these dot-coms, which we now call startups. And so they called me to say, hey, can you come help us? And I'd be like, well, Miller Hyman doesn't do that. And they're like, oh, well, we just need to start up a sales team from scratch. I'm like, oh, no problem. I've never done that before. Uh, let me see if I can do it. And there we went and there we did. Um, and we were very successful. And uh, that morphed into me doing what I do today, which is still working with companies um, that are under $100 million. They're not startups. They're usually 10 plus years in and 10 plus million in revenues. Of course, they have a complex sale. But um, I'm working with them to go from incremental growth to ex exponential growth uh, to increase their value so that their investors are happy, they're happy, they can exit or have more choices. Now, are the founders still at these companies that you're working with or the fo founders have already left? 
Yeah. In most cases, the founders are still there. So they're owner-led investor backed. There are some, there's some variety in that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but that's the main case. Um, you what, know, good founders often put a CEO in place. So, you know, that's smart founders, but it's, you know, at the 10 year mark, probably not. It just depends. Uh, but it's interesting because all of these companies are more mature, but something's happened to make them need that extra push now to increase their sales and increase their valuation. Yeah. So like what's going on? They, they hit Peter principle. I mean, the founder's got to be pretty gutsy to say, Hey, I need help. Like what, why are they bringing you? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's lots of reasons, right? One, they don't want to be sass holes. Um, so right. <laughs> uh, I think that the, the CEOs who bring me in know that they don't know everything about sales that they need to. Most of them recognize that sales has changed so much because the buyer behavior has changed and they don't really know how to address it. And their sales leaders don't either. And I wouldn't expect it because they get in their little tunnel, right? And they've been doing something that worked for quite some time, right? But now all of a sudden it's not working or it's not working as well as they'd like it to. They now have some need for more growth than they've had in the past. And so the, the CEOs who come to me are usually through referral. Somebody tells them about me or they find me, you know, because of my writing and my musings like this. And then they say, hey, how do I get my sales team to do this? You know, how do I get my sales leaders to think this way? So usually they need a mindset shift themselves. They just don't know what it is, but they know they 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 know something needs to change. They don't really recognize that they are the one who will need to change if they really want to power their sales growth. But I show them that. And then once they change, it's not so hard to get the change from the leaders. The leaders will either see the vision and change, or they'll self-select out and we'll find someone who does see the vision. Um, and then the sales team, you know, of course, is like delighted to follow a great leader. So if you give them something to follow, they'll do it and they improve immediately, right? But it is really a lot about the mindset. Um, and that mindset has to be a customer-focused mindset and a mindset that says, we're going to meet the customer where they are, and we will give them an exceptional experience. One of the hardest things I'm under the impression of, because you're doing this for a living, and I'm just talking for a living, they're bringing you in to help to scale, and you have the founder there. And the the the, the trick is, I hear, is that you want to somehow keep that culture. You don't want it to dissipate as the company grows. Because the founder has all the passion. The founder is the number one salesperson. Well, when your last name is on the, on the building, okay, it's easy to come in with authority and you need influence in, in order to persuade somebody to sell. What is your advice to these founders that bring you in and say, hey, I want to scale the business, but I don't want to lose the culture? <laughs> I wish they had a culture that they didn't want to lose. Sorry. I mean, it's just the truth because they right. need to build a culture. Like again, many of my CEOs are 10 or even 20 years in, right? So they're not new to this. We usually have to change the culture. I see behaviors that are being tolerated. I mostly see lack of accountability, you know, and 
that's not, there's no culture. The salespeople are rogue. They run amok. Um, they're doing the best they can, but they've kind of been left to their own devices in many of these companies. Remember, I'm talking about companies between 20 and 100 million, even though they're 10 plus years old. Yeah. Um, so there is no real culture around sales. Now, there may be a company culture, and that is whatever it is that they've built. But most of the time when I show up on the scene, there is no real sales culture. Or if it is, it's a real bad one. Like um, internally, people complain about the customers, like the finance people or the ops people or people who have to deliver will just bitch and moan and complain about those customers. Oh my God, our customers suck. They're awful. Um, they're just, you know, they're, they're so difficult, you know? So we, we can't really have that, that as the culture, right. Or we're not going to succeed. Um, and then a lot of times everybody be internally looks at the sales reps and they're like, what are you doing? What are you selling? Why'd you go sell that? We don't do that. You know, there's all this infighting, right? And then there's marketing over here doing a thing and salespeople saying, we don't have any leads. You know, marketing like sucks. this sounds like a conversation we should have had 10 years ago, but it's still happening today. We talk about sales and marketing alignment, but I don't see sales and marketing alignment. It takes a while for me once I get in to show them what sales and marketing alignment means, what go-to market means. How do we do this together? What is a commercial engine, right? Where customer success and marketing and ops and finance and sales all work together to provide an exceptional customer experience. You, the two words follow through, okay? That's culture in of itself because in a sales organization, if you don't follow through on somebody that's not right. performing, everybody's going to look at that person and say, well, that person's still there here. So I guess I'm, I'm okay. How do you, <laughs> the founder's going to say, well, uh, Dave's been here from the beginning. I can't get rid of him. He's, <laughs> he's yep. such a great guy. Happens all the time. How do you, how do you change? <laughs> Cause we're talking about the founder, right? It's like, you're calling their right. baby ugly. How do you right. pretty that up? Yeah. I mean, it just becomes fairly self-evident. I don't have to throw anybody under the bus. Usually occasionally I have to go, do you see what that person is doing to your company? And then they're like, Oh yes. And it still will take them eight months to a year to get rid of the person, but you know, they do. Um, but that's founders. They love their people and they should, I mean, that's part yeah. of what they've built as their culture. And I understand that. Um, usually things just become self-evident when we start to survey the customer and ask them what their experience has been, uh, what would make it better, uh, when we take a look at the existing customer base and how many of them are ex are have had an exceptional experience, are beyond just a company who has purchased, but they're actually satisfied and there's great user adoption, right? So when we start looking at who the current customers are and what level of success they're having with what they purchased from the company, it all becomes very clear. So I don't have to, you know, say... <laughs> These people are not doing their job. It becomes super, super obvious, especially when we do things like measure happy customers. Okay, that's one measure. Or like, let's just measure customers. Oh, we have a hundred customers that pay us X amount of dollars. 
Mm, happy customers. How many of those 100 are happy? Okay. Mm, that's good. But how about successful? Let's measure successful customers. How many of our customers are successful using what we sold them? And that becomes a, uh, there's a hundred customers and about mm, eight or 10 of them are successful. What we would consider successful, which means they're happy. They have high user adoption. They take advantage of everything we offer them. They communicate with us. Uh, you know, we have ongoing relationship with them that matters and they don't just get the next shiny object and leave us. Right. So renewals are easy. Oh, imagine that renewals are easy. Right. But if you're a SAS hole, then renewals aren't easy. Do they bring you in to be the bad guy or girl say, oh, well, you got to go meet with Alice. Uh, sorry, uh, Dave, you have to leave. They not yes and no. Like I, that does end up happening. Like a CEO will say to me, can you tell me if this sales leader, you know, is the right person for the job? <laughs> I'd be like, if you think they're not the right person for the job, they're probably not the right person for the job. You don't need me to tell you, but okay. Yeah. And you know, I do coach a lot of sales leaders and some of them choose not to stay. So do you drive up to the company in a different car? I always Uber. So, you know, they can't pop my tires or anything. No, um, you know, I've never really had a bad experience. And I guess probably part of the reason is because I help them self-select out. I always want there to be a graceful parting. I never want anybody to go away mad. Why? Because you never know what the future may hold. They may leave and go to a company that you end up acquiring and you've got them back. Right? right. Or right. they may end up being your boss or able to hire you someday. So whatever it is, why, why leave it? Why leave it poorly? Right. But they could be a recommender, you know, they could be the, your next partner company. You just don't know. So what you really want to do is always have a graceful exit. Let people self-select out. Let them see that this is no longer the place where they can grow and learn any further. And it would be better for them to find a new place where they are off to their next adventure and can grow and learn. So for that reason, because that is the way I look at it, I have never had a problem with it. How, how long do you give a person that you come in and I would assume you say, look, here's what we're going to do. And after this period of time, either you're in or you're out. What is that? <laughs> well, I don't say that. Of... I don't say okay. that ever. I say but... that. That's why I'm doing podcasts. Right. Sometimes it's two seconds. Like in yeah. two seconds, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. This person <laughs> has to go. How do I know in two seconds? The words they use to describe their own company and their own boss and the people they work with and their customers. If they start off and start throwing people under the bus right away, complaining, any of that, I'm like, oh, oh God, gotta go, gotta go. So if that happens, I know in two seconds, Okay. this is never gonna work. You're gonna have to figure out a graceful exit for this person. Um, and I use those exact words. Let's find a graceful exit. Um, sometimes, you know, they don't use any words that give me any signals. 
And when I ask them questions, they have good answers. And I, I say, okay, well, let's see, you know, let's see, do your actions match your words? And it will take me a little longer to figure out whether their actions match their words or not. Sometimes they honestly just really don't know what to do and they need to learn some new skills or some new ideas or change their mindset. And if they're open and willing to do that, it's fantastic. Right? So yeah, I mean, Sometimes it takes two seconds and sometimes it takes three or four months. Okay. Three or four months. (laughs) Let's talk differentiation then, because anybody can look at stack ranks, you know, that's all from work that was done in the past, whatever the sales cycle is. What do you look at now? Cause there's so much technology and Frankenstacks out there that can monitor everything. What do you look at to determine, Hey, you know what? This person's not putting up the sales now, but the work that is being put in, I believe they can transform themselves into the future. What do you look at? Are there any KPIs, uh, key performance indicators that you look at? Um, Thank you for explaining your three-letter acronyms. I really hate it when people do that. (laughs) Some years are really funny. I hate acronyms. Side, Side note, side note. So I was digging up some stuff for one of my clients who uses Miller Hyman, right? So they, they, you know, pay corn Ferry to, to use the IP and learning strategic selling. And I found a chart that we had used. I don't know. It was in my hard drive from back in the day. I don't know what it was. Anyway, somebody had put some initials on there, uh, you know, an acronym and I sent it to my client. She goes like, what does MAR mean? I'm like, I have absolutely no idea. And this is why I always tell people do not use acronyms because you can't remember, like you remember the three letters, but you don't remember what they actually stand for. But here we are throwing these acronyms around anyway. So that was my own bad. I was like, I have no idea what those three initials. <laughs> well, acronyms, um, nobody's going to tell you they don't know. They're going to nod their head. That doesn't mean. Oh, no, nobody's going to say they don't know what a VDR is a valid business <laughs> reason. Um, right. Nobody's going to tell you anyway. Um, how do I, how do I know the change in behavior is what I look for. And these maybe aren't things you can measure with a number, but I work with them on their time management and their calendar. And I look at that to see if they have adopted the practices that will allow them to spend time focusing on what is most important, um, which is coaching their salespeople and um, helping them, you know, meet the right people, opening doors, helping them close doors, right? Get those deals closed and helping them manage their pipeline. So I'm looking for behavior change. As far as sales goes, what I'm wanting them to measure is conversations. And the simple statement constantly that I hear about, you know, X amount of salespeople don't hit their quota. I'm like, well, there's probably something wrong with the quota or the way you trained your salespeople, but it's probably not the salespeople's fault, right? Let's talk math, okay? <laughs> I mean, there's no better sales family to come up in than yours. What percentage of the sales team should achieve quota to say, hey, you know what? I got a good sales team or I'm hitting my numbers. How many should be making it? Well, if the quota has been set properly based on reality, not like, let me pull a number out of the okay, air, right? Properly, what's properly? Yeah, properly is 
taking a look at market, right? Where you stand in the marketplace, what uh, percent of market share you have, what you believe the increase can be based on how well you are known and how much money you're willing to spend to be known, right? And how well your machine runs, right? So if, if the quota is set properly, you know, some history is available to help us do these things as well, but it has to be more forward-looking and based on reality of what you can do. Like, hey, we want to increase by 20%. Well, great. Did you increase your marketing by 20%? Like, where are these leads coming from? You know, are we increasing the average deal size? And how did you train your salespeople to do that? Like, so if we, if we have some, you know, something solid behind those quotas, then, you know, basically 80 to 90% of the people should hit or exceed them because we've set them up for success. Now, there are times when people aren't going to hit their quota because they got sick in the middle of the quarter and couldn't work. Uh, they, the, there, something happened in the region that they sell in, or something happened to that vertical and there were massive layoffs or something in that vertical. So there's always going to be some market forces that will make it so that we don't hit our quota. And then sometimes there'll be some personal things or some company things that might make it that, that, that the case. But for the most part, we should be out there doing everything we can to set the quota properly and to support the salespeople to reach and exceed that quota. That should be the goal. Don't just reach your quota. Please exceed it. I'd be happy to pay you to exceed your quota, right? And that doesn't mean you set the quota wrong. It means that you supported your salespeople so well that they went out and got all the market share they could that you expected them to, but then they were just ingenious enough to go get a little bit more. Why can't companies just be brave enough and say, I don't know what the quota should be. <laughs> well, I, I'd like quotas to go away completely. I'd like us to, to survey our customers and ask them what the future holds for them and how we can serve them. And then go take a look at, you know, who the prospects are and what is expected and work the whole thing a different way. I mean, the Al, math Alice, we use for quotas is so stupid. It, it's And the, the, the wasted energy on it, pay at risk, Okay. That needs to go away. It should be now. You're gonna may throw your shoe at the screen. Everybody gets a salary, and what kind of revenue you bringing in for the salary that I'm paying out? A person should be paid no more or less to the degree where it's not an issue anymore. Okay, market wages, whatever's paying it, right? Okay, if so I should, the top salespeople are making, you know, throw out a number, three hundred grand a year. Okay. Here's your salary, three hundred, and you are required to bring in this amount of money. If you don't, then you cannot have that salary, or you have a period of time where you have to show you can bring it in or go away. It's not going to happen. It looks too yeah. expensive on a sales uh, plan, but that's what it should be because you have so many of these people staring at Excel spreadsheets and looking for reasons why they're not hitting it. Right. It's complicated. I'm going to say that it is complicated. You have a new breed of salespeople coming up, and which we need, who think differently and who want a different type of compensation. But there are still many of the, you know, traditional sellers out there in the marketplace who expect a base plus some kind of variable comp 
and they're willing to risk. You know, these are people who have a different risk tolerance, right? They're out there and they're fighting for something bigger. Not everyone's willing to risk part of their compensation on whether or not they perform. So it's a very interesting question. And I think it needs to be debated out loud, you know, <laughs> in the marketplace about how we should compensate salespeople. I feel like it's time for a change for sure. I'm not a hundred percent sure what that change should be, but if you don't support your salespeople, it doesn't really matter how you compensate them because they won't be successful. If you're supporting your salespeople, let's say they have a million and a half or $2 million quota, you would be happy to pay them three to $500,000 to bring that in. Um, but you know, we have other people in the company saying, why should salespeople get paid so much more? Well, that's what, you know, thus, I think there's two pieces to this one, they, their base is comparable to everybody else's, but then because they sell, they get more. Um, and that's part of it. Right. Um, and I don't know. I mean, if everybody in the organization was more focused on the customer and part of the team that landed those customers, then the pay could change. But because we expect salespeople to do this work basically on their own, I mean, it's ridiculous what we expect of salespeople these days. They have to be marketers, they have to be customer success people, and they have to open and close the deal. I don't really understand, you know, so we should be paying them a lot of money because they're doing the job of three or four people today. And right. even where we have sales segmented into SDRs and BDRs and customer success and sales, I still see the salespeople have to generate their own leads, even though marketing or SDRs are supposed to be getting appointments from them. They don't. So the best salespeople I know, the ones who make 500,000 or 800,000 or a million dollars a year, most of that in variable comp, do it themselves. They book their own appointments. They move their own deals through. They make sure their, their clients are onboarded regardless of whether they have customer success or not. It's a hard job. So if we're really going to build teams around these salespeople and we're really going to support them, then I think we can change the pay. But right now, like how would that even happen? I, I get the pushback I get is, you know, well, the top 5%, the risk takers, they want to, the top 5% are going to be the top 5% no matter what. Make sure the compensation is there and make sure they're recognized accordingly. For I look at what are you measuring and what I measure is conversations. If salespeople are having three, four, five conversations a day with people who can buy from them, either at the very beginning of the process or towards the end of the process, then we know that our pipeline is going to stay full. If they are sending a lot of email and they're spending a lot of time on social media, which is fine. I mean, there's some great reasons to be on social media. I'm not saying there's not, but if they're not having actual conversations via video, phone, in person, at trade shows, you know, if they're not talking to people who can buy from them, then we're measuring the wrong things, right? <laughs> because I don't care how many emails you sent, I care how many of them booked you a conversation with a person who can buy from you. And let's face it, no matter how you slice or dice it, sales is a numbers game. There is math 
to sales. You need to know the math. And the math tells us the more times we talk to somebody who could actually buy from us, the more chances we have to sell something. So don't tell me, oh my gosh, they send this many emails and they do this many things and they do this many things. It's like, how many conversations did they have today with a human who can buy? That's what I want to know. So that's, I look at all the behaviors that drive that. And when I see them doing lots of activity and having no conversations, it's like, stop, you are preventing sales. We need to figure out how to encourage sales, not prevent them. Get more investors and grow something different. You want to go public? Like, what do you want? Right. And so what really comes down to is just like basic human needs. Like, why did you start this company and what do you want from it? Once I can understand that, then I can help them get what they want, right? And I try to help them get it the easy way because they're usually doing it the hard way and they, they're not getting what they want. Of the clients that you have coming in, how, do, how would you break it down that you see? Exit, you know, what, what does it look like? You know, interestingly enough, I... I would, you would think that most of my CEOs want to exit, right? And, and some of them indeed do want to exit, but it's way farther out than you might think. Um, I have helped many CEOs successfully exit their companies. And I got to do that and build one unicorn with a CEO. So that was super fun. So a lot of times though, they want to exit, but it's not in the very near future, so they don't really think about it a lot. I'm going to say most of them are still in building, even at the 10, 20 year mark, they're still in, I want to build it mode. They enjoy building it and they want to continue building and growing it. And some of them are very altruistic in that they really want to provide good jobs for people and their people matter to them very much, right? So... I think in the end, all of them will want to, of course, exit in some way and make good money off of that. But most of them don't talk about that all the time. They are really talking about growing and growing and learning and, you know, the people that work for them and the marketplace and their customers. What are the top problems that you're fixing, Alice, when you go into a, a company and you're, they say, hey, here's sales, uh, go go fix that? Yeah. The top problem is they're not focused on the customer. And so everything that they're doing is, is just off, right? <laughs> it's just off because it's not, it doesn't start with a customer in the center, right? And how do we do all these things to make our customer not just happy, but loyal and, you know, make sure they have an exceptional experience. So when you start to peel, peel it back and go, was that an exceptional experience we just provided for that, those buyers, that group of buyers? The answer is no. So I always say, what are you doing to make it easier to be your customer and harder to be your competitor? That's, that's yeah. what I fix, right? Make it easier for these people to buy from you. That, it, that is the biggest thing. It is hard for people to buy from them. And the salespeople make it hard. The CEO makes it hard. The legal department makes it hard. Ops makes it hard. Finance makes it hard. They all have these internal rules, these things that have to be done. They've always done them. And that is the way we do it. 
And so with that, you get a lot of sales prevention departments. And when you have a whole bunch of sales prevention departments, you are going to have salespeople who don't hit their quota. So we, we have to take a look at that customer journey and we have to understand how to meet the customers where they are. How do they find us? Why are they interested in us? What are the problems that they have? How are those the same or different than others in their industry, than their own competitors? How can we improve their lives and make it better? How can we make it easy for them to get what they need and want? If we can answer all of those questions, things improve vastly, right? But when we just say, well, we need to build a better sales process, what would a better sales process look like? Well, you know, we need velocity. We 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 need, you know, <laughs> a higher close ratio and more velocity. Okay, how do you get that? You have to be kind and caring and help your customers solve their problems and get what they need. And when you do that, you got plenty of pipeline, you got plenty of velocity and your close ratio is really good. Do you think that putting the word strategic in front of sales is just overcomplicated things? No offense to your old man. Uh, no, not it's not. It depends, right? There's lots of sales. There's a business to business to consumer sale. There's retail sales. Um, none of that is necessarily strategic. Um, I think there are some business to consumer sales that definitely could be more strategic. Some need to be. Some don't need to be. Um, but once you get into a business to business sale that is complex, it, it, it does have to be strategic. We do need to think strategically about the bigger picture and how the customer and our own team will work together, not just think about closing a deal. So we do have, and the approach has to be more strategic as well, because we have a group of sellers at our company. Most companies have given up the lone wolf selling and they do put together teams to go out to the customer, especially when they're selling to companies 10 to 1000 times their size, right? So they do have to be more strategic in their approach to the whole marketplace and then to their approach to each individual company that they want to sell to. And so I do believe that the word strategic needs to be there when it's a complex sale. Now, let me just back up again and say, what is a complex sale? A complex yeah. sale is one where there are many people involved in making the decision on the buyer side, but there are many people on the seller side involved in that as well. You know, back again to finance, legal. So we have contracts and we have the payment methods and we have um, the subject matter experts. And then we have the engineers who say it's going to work or it isn't going to work right on both sides of this. So there's a lot of people involved. There's usually high dollar stakes. So, and for every company, high dollar stakes is different. A $5,000 sale might be a big sale for some companies, but the companies I work with, uh, they're hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And especially over the lifetime of a customer, you're talking, you know, could be 8 million in annual recurring revenue over you know, a period of time. So that is more strategic because you, the customer is can't back out of that. It's like once they're in, they're in because that's too hard to change. So if they're unhappy and now they're stuck with you as well, you know, so yes, it does have to be strategic. And there are some companies you just simply shouldn't do business with and you need to figure that out. And then you need to say, you know, we simply should not do business together. You need to find another solution. Um, so yeah, I think it, I think it is strategic 
in some well, cases, not all some, cases. I think people forget the, the the basics of fear of loss, desire for gain, and you know the expectations. And if you just keep that in the back of your mind, and the strategic, there's many more buyers. You're repeating the same process, this you know same core principles. As long as people don't forget that. I have a podcast. I Let's don't know it. if you've Here. listened to it, but it's called Sales Talk for CEOs. And I talk about this stuff with CEOs all the time. So I interview CEOs who have been there, done that. Some of them multiple times. They have built sales organizations. They have scaled their sales. They talk about the mistakes they've made. And we talk about a lot of these things that you and I have talked about. Um, and it's it's just really worthwhile for other CEOs to hear you know, how their peers have done things. Where, where I also, can I see this podcast? Uh, oh, YouTube it's anywhere, or, uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts, sales talk for CEOs, or you can go to sales talk for CEOs.biz, or you can go to alicehyman.com forward slash blog, uh, podcast. You could also go to my blog, but you can go to my podcast. Yeah. Well, and tell us yeah. about your blog. Yeah. So, um, oh, one more thing about the podcast. I also yeah, yeah. Uh, interview experts and those are people who, can advise CEOs on how to scale their sales. So those conversations are really fun as well. And then in my blog, I write about a lot of these things that you and I have been talking about that CEOs simply need to know about sales to get their organizations to where they want them to be. In our lifetime, I mean, we're in the podcast business. You had the internet, that was a game changer. And now I think video is becoming a, a game yeah. changer, whether it's Zoom or whatever you want to call it, or sending a three-minute proposal mm -hmm. that's a side-by-side -side video. How have, you, how have you used video in in your business, Alice? Well, like everyone else, I think I could use video even more. Um, I do use video for my podcast, but I think most people are probably listening to it, not watching it. Um, I don't make little video snippets for LinkedIn like a lot of people do. Eh, probably could. I, I use it mostly to communicate with my customers, um, my current clients before an event that we're going to do like a sales kickoff, or if I'm going to do um, some kind of a big conversation, I don't really call it training anymore because I believe in having facilitated discussions about topics that we need to improve in versus a training where it's sort of, I'm pushing out information. Wait, to isn't you. it I enablement like now? To be a dialogue. I don't know. Sales enablement. Yeah. I'm a sales enabler. I don't know what that means. <laughs> you but have to get a yeah, proposal so across I use the video, video for that, right? I use the video for sales enablement. So I'll say, Hey, we're going to meet and talk about this in a few days. Here's a couple thoughts to put in your head and down below, there's a link to a few articles you should read to get prepped for this dis discussion we're going to have. Or if I'm a speaker at, a, at a, an event, I speak at events where CEOs gather. Um, I'll send a, hi, I'm Alice. I'm going to you know, be talking to you at this upcoming event. And I wanted to introduce myself and give you a few thoughts, you know, to prepare for that. Um, so I use video that way. Um, I have my clients use video to communicate like we are with their customers. And then I also have them use video in their emails. Um, still today, people are very reluctant to use video and I get it, you know, like I'm, the, I'm the same as ever. I want to look at myself instead of looking at the camera, you know, <laughs> it's hard. Um, my friend, uh, Julie Hansen, um, she is on LinkedIn all the time talking about 
talking to the camera. You know, she used to be an actress and she talks about how do you, how do you build trust through the camera? All of that. I think it's really important that salespeople learn how to do that because we are never going to go back to the amount of travel that we had prior to the pandemic because company, companies have simply realized they don't need to and they can cut that cost tremendously. I'm not saying we shouldn't meet in person. We should. And especially at trade shows and conferences, meet around other events. So we're just not willy-nilly flying around for an hour meeting and that kind of stuff. Those days are gone. So you have to get good at this medium. You need to be able to look in the camera and talk to somebody and get them to feel you talking to them, right? Um, and that reminds me, Julie Hansen wrote a great book called Look Me in the Eye. So if you need help using video, right, then do that. Don't, you're not looking down here. You're not looking at, you know, looking over here. Looking, at, And it's hard. Like when I, I do video meetings all day long and I find it really hard to stare at my camera. I want to look at the person I'm talking to because in person, I would be able to do that, right? But it doesn't translate well. So you gotta look at the camera, right? And you gotta, you know, it's just, like if I invited you to my office, I wouldn't invite you into a mess. Like I clean up my office and have it look nice when I'm on video. So you you see, you know, my office environment, just that I, same as if I invited you in for a meeting um, in person. So yes, video is super important. It can be used a lot of different ways. Salespeople can use it for thought leadership to post their ideas on um, social media. They can use it to communicate via, via text with a video, via email with a video, via LinkedIn message with a video, and they should be using it for their meetings. Even if they're customer doesn't want to turn on the camera, they turn their camera on and let people see their smiling face and their, you know, their intent and they can build trust that way. Alice Hyman, thank you so much for coming on the Sassholes podcast. You have elevated <laughs> the show to a new level. <laughs> My pleasure. I just don't want to be known as a Sasshole. <laughs> Why not? Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. We'd like to thank Demand Farm Winalytics and Aaron J for their continued support. Demandfarm.com. Unlock key account growth with Demand Farm's large deal, key account, and relationship intelligence products. Go to Demandfarm.com now to schedule a demo. Ask for Iron Man. Brent Keltner's Winalytics Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass. In five hours over five weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team build the mindset and skills for a new buyer environment. Kick off in product-driven selling versus authentic conversations for all go-to-market teams. Team-level sessions for self-assessment and team dialogue. All go-to-market team wrap-up to identify top go-to-market strategy adjustments. Go to winalytics.com now.